Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 33 through 37, Matthew chapter 5. This is another section of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's on oaths, making promises. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that you would open our hearts now to receive this message. It's on personal integrity, and Lord, we need to have it. God, you're the only one who can give us the kind of integrity we need where our yes is yes and our no is no, where we have follow-through because of the power of your Holy Spirit. So open our eyes now to your word and convict us and wound us and then heal us up with the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a way that you can kind of measure the growing lack of integrity in our society around us. People's yes is no longer yes, and their no is no longer no in many cases. And you know that in personal ways, whether at home or at work or people you deal with or commitments that people make to you and they don't follow through. But one way to sort of critique our culture is to see the growing fascination with prenuptial agreements. There are more and more of those and they're on the rise. And I saw in an internet article by the Edmonds firm, some law firm in the lower 48, that 80% more prenuptial agreements are on the rise in the last five years. So that it's grown by 80%. And it's a sensitive subject, and they try to sort of downplay it in the article and say, you know, it's like dreaming about your future or discussing your future goals. This is a way to to minimize awkwardness should divorce come. And it kind of gets a little bit humorous. It begins to say, you know, prenuptial agreements aren't just for those who have their new trophy wife and they've got a lot to lose in this deal. Now it's more for the middle-agers and the baby boomers who just are trying to make things go well for themselves. But there are some stranger demands that are being put on these things, some curious items like some of the strangest ones. Now family pets are included in the prenuptial agreement. Who will get the pet, you know, one way or the other? And it says including reptiles. But a few of them described agreements that included things regarding marital intimacy, house cleaning, duty delegation, scheduling, limitations, and like your spouse's health and weight and things like that. It's kind of a sad commentary on our culture, and a prenuptial agreement, in essence, is your divorce papers being written up before you say, I do. Now, looking back at Matthew chapter 5, this section is on personal integrity. I thought, you know, what is really here in verses 33 through 37 that's that powerful? I thought it was kind of a benign passage on oaths and, and sort of understanding the law the right way, but Jesus underneath the surface is really trying to draw people out and he's going deep into the heart to say, look, you need to, as a Christian, have personal integrity. 
Your yes needs to be yes, and your no needs to be no. For instance, when you get married, your yes and I do needs to be forever. That needs to be your heart when you make a contractual agreement. And that's what Jesus is after. He's, he's basically smoking out the Pharisees who were using the Ten Commandments and the law of God in the Old Testament to hide, to use as a smokescreen for their lack of obedience on a heart level. They were saying, oh, you know, like for instance, verses 21 through 26, you know, if you don't murder anybody, you're fine. And Jesus says, no, no, if you have anger or you're calling people idiots or you're not forgiving, then you've done it. You've crossed the line and you are breaking this commandment. Lust is another thing he points out. The Pharisees were saying, look, you know, as long as I don't commit adultery with another person, then I'm fine. But he says, no, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've done it already. And then with divorce, he says, no, divorce shouldn't be some easy, you know, step one, two, and three process where you just give your spouse a certificate of divorce like Deuteronomy 24 prescribes. No, it's not prescribed in Scripture It was just allowed. There was a concession made because of the hardness of the heart, hearts of the people. And so divorce should be a difficult thing that you go through in any case. And it should be on the grounds of sexual immorality. That is where a spouse has not repented of that immorality. And now in verses 33 through 37, he's uncovering one more smokescreen. He's clarifying that the Pharisees were saying, oh, you know, the law says just make an oath and keep your oath and you have integrity. But Jesus is saying, no, no matter how grandiose your oath looks on the outside, if you don't have follow through going on in your heart, then you don't have any integrity at all. That's what he's saying, in essence. We could close in prayer just with that. (laughs) It's the idea that you have to be the same on the outside that you are on the inside. You've heard of the word, you know, the numerical term integer, and that's sort of the same word family as integrity. A whole number, one, two, or three, is a whole number as opposed to a fraction. A fraction, it could represent somebody who's duplicitous, somebody who's a broken number. They're not whole. They're not the same on the inside as they are on the outside if you lack integrity integrity. Jesus is calling the bluff on the Pharisees who were faking it. They were making grandiose commitments saying, oh, I'll swear by Jerusalem or I'll swear by the earth or I'll I'll swear by this or I'll swear by that. And then they weren't following through at all. Or their, their follow through was just sort of insincere and not real on the heart level. A lot of people look at this passage and they say, well, Jesus is condemning swearing in general. Perhaps people say, look, this is it right here. You, you can't swear falsely. You can't, some people say it's, it's a, a negative commentary on swearing, on saying bad words. It's not that. And it's also not saying that you can't make an oath. People say, well, look, this passage means you can't make an oath at all. There are the Anabaptists and there are, um, you know, some of the Plymouth Brethren people and Quakers who say, look, when I'm in court, if I was put on the jury, I'm not going to raise my hand and and swear on the Bible because I I can't. The Bible says I can't swear or make an oath for anything. But really, that's not Jesus' point at all. In fact, God made oaths. Remember? 
God promised, he made an oath in Genesis 9, never to destroy the world again by a flood, right? He made an oath to send the Redeemer, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. And in Hebrews 6, 17, he confirmed his promise of salvation to his heirs with an oath. With an oath. Deuteronomy 10, 20 says, Fear the Lord, serve his name, cleave to him, and you will swear by his name. So the issue isn't the process of making an oath. We're allowed to do that, even encouraged in some respects. The issue is what's underneath your oath. Is your yes, yes, and your no, no. When Romans 13 says, for instance, Owe no man anything but love, Paul is saying, look, don't have outstanding debts with people. Love people. (laughs) If you make that sort of commitment to borrow money, just promise to pay it back and then indeed pay it back. That's the point. This verse 31 is picking up on several different passages from the Old Testament. This is not, I'm sorry, verse 33, excuse me, is, is not a direct reference from an Old Testament verse. Said you've heard it was said from those of old. In other words, people have repeated this teaching over the years that, verse 33, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. What he's saying is, he's saying, look, you've heard it based on Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, where it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. You've heard of that verse, and that verse is true. When you promise something, In the name of the Lord, you need to follow through. That's what that verse means. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't say, I'll do it. You know, by by God's name, I will do this. Don't say that and then not follow through. Leviticus 19, 12 says, do not swear falsely. Don't promise something and then not follow through. Numbers 32, 30, verse 2 says, if you vow, do not break your word. So it's talking about having integrity. It's talking about keeping your word. It's talking about being a promise keeper. That's what it's talking about. It's not saying you should never make a promise like this at all. Paul made promises. He said, look, I promise I meant to come to be with you. I promise I'm praying for you. I promise I'm burdened by the Holy Spirit that I want the, the Jews to be saved. He made these kinds of promises. Romans 1.9, 1 Thessalonians 2.5, a couple examples. And he would say when he would make a promise, God is witness. Do you remember that reading in the New Testament? He says, look, God is witness how much I've prayed for you. That's an oath in the name of the Lord, and that's what he was doing. So here in this passage, verses 33 through 37, I break it up into two points. And these are two ways that Jesus defines spiritual integrity. Here's the first way he defines spiritual integrity. He tells you what it's not. What spiritual integrity isn't. That's what he's doing. Look at verses 34 and following. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. In other words, don't do this if you're going to fake it. That's his point. Don't take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let's stop there. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, the Pharisees were saying, we will make an oath, but we'll make an oath and not use God's name when we make the oath. Sort of as some 
pious way to do this. We're going we're gonna, to um, kind of ramp up the language and ramp up the religiosity by saying, I will follow through, and I'm not going to take the Lord's name in vain here. I'm going to swear by heaven. Or, you know, I'm not going to take the Lord's name in vain. I'll swear by earth. Or I'm not going to take the Lord's name of it. I will follow through with my, my oath here because I'm so spiritual. And I will swear by Jerusalem on that. That's what they were basing their sort of integrity on. This sort of external thing. Heaven or earth or Jerusalem. I'll follow through by heaven's name or by earth's name. Or, you know, or even if you look at verse 36, I'll swear by myself. I'll swear by my own head. You know, you can chop my head off if I don't fulfill this commitment. They were making all these grandiose promises. And what Jesus does is he says, you know what? Every time they make that kind of promise, what they're really doing is they're promising themselves before God. And God sees their heart. Watch how he does it. Verse 34. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. Why? For it is the throne of God. So when a Pharisee said, look, I'm going to do this thing by heaven. I'm going to put heaven on the line as what I'm promising towards. Jesus uncovers it and says, you know what? Heaven, whoops, that was the throne of God. God sees you when you made that commitment to heaven. And then, or by earth, uh, don't do that, Jesus says, for it is his footstool. In other words, well, you just promised, you know, in the name of your spirituality, you promised based on earth. Up, oh, but that's God's domain too. So God's got you there as well. And then lastly, or by Jerusalem. Don't do that either because that is God's special city, the city where he is called the great king. So God is watching your hypocrisy no matter where you make your commitment to. No matter how spiritual you're coming across, Jesus is saying, you're still a hypocrite. To the Pharisees. And look where he really indicts them. He eats them up in Matthew 23. Matthew 23. I, put, I have it for the screen as well. Matthew 23, verses 16 and 22. He's giving woe judgments. He's calling them hypocrites, saying, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? What Jesus is doing is he's indicting the Pharisees again, saying, look, the Pharisees sometimes are saying, look, swear by the altar, but not the gift on the altar. Because, you know, if you, if you swear by one thing or the other thing, your commitment is greater. And Jesus is saying, look, you're just wordsmithing here. You're twisting the law to try to ramp up these oaths. It's either, either real, authentic promises or fake promises. And Jesus is going, you're just being legalistic. You're just keeping things on the surface. If you do it this way, if you mention the gold, then it's real. If you don't mention the gold, then it's not. And again, Jesus uncovers all of this madness in verse 20. He says, so whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by, here it is again, by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. What's Jesus' point? If you make a promise, you know what? Your promise is first and foremost to God. 
That's the point. No matter how you're wording it, whether it's to the altar or the gift on the altar or by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem, really integrity begins and ends with your commitment to the Lord. For your yes to be yes and your no to be no, it needs to come before God. When you say you're going to do something, where's your accountability start and finish with? God. That's Jesus' point. Go back to Matthew 5. Back to Matthew 5. God sees our hearts. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of people in the counseling room, and uh, sort of in my associate ministry time, I ministered to a lot of people who were in their 20s and in their 30s. And I found that there was some sort of epidemic in those age groups, and that is people were coming to me again and again, and they were not locking into a career path. You know, they would say, oh, you know, I'm in this deadbeat job and, you know, I, I got sort of partially trained for it and jumped into it and I had to do it and I was reacting and I jumped into this thing and, oh, by the way, I hate my boss and he just beats me up all the time and he's so negative. And over and over again, I'd hear people kind of rant and rave. Eventually, my eyes would just kind of glaze over. I mean, I know people have bad situations. I do. And in, I know people start things sometimes and by circumstances that are beyond their control. They can't finish those things. I understand that. But after a while, the complaining and complaining and excuse making and buck passing just got old. And it it ultimately led me to passages like these where I'm thinking there are people whose yes is not yes and whose no is not no. There are people out there who are just not finishers. You know, they, they come to a stage in life and they still don't have a direction. They still don't have a trade. And it can be very sad, but the Lord can transform a heart and can call people to higher levels of commitment. And we should use passages like these for ourselves and for other people to say, listen, we need to start things and we need to finish them. We need to, to work through what the Lord has given us to do and not make these sort of grandiose, all right, this time, you know, I started the program and this time I'm going to finish. Well, only if your integrity is set before the Lord and you realize that you're serving him and that's what breeds follow through. I read an article on lying this week and it had a warning at the top of the page and said, warning, you know, if you read this article about how to detect people in lies, you'll never be the same with people again because people lie all the time. And uh, it said, you know, this is how you tell the signs of, of people lying. You know, they have stiffness in their body language. They, they minimize eye contact. When you ask them a question, they look down and then look back up at you. You know, they change the subject really quickly, right? They're, they're real happy to change the subject. Oh, yeah, let's get on to this other topic, you know. And, you know, here's, here's sort of a standard tell that we've all seen. When you give someone a gift... And you, you just sense they don't like it because they open the package and they look at it and go, oh, I love it. You know, but there was that second of, you know, question mark. They don't really love it. But one of the statements stood out to me and it connected back with this passage. It was that liars sometimes avoid lying by not making direct statements. They won't make direct statements. And that, I think, is what the Pharisees were doing. Oh, we'll swear by this. Oh, we'll swear by this. And they were skirting the issue. When we make a promise, we want to be direct. When we, when we make a promise to someone, we are promising before God to fulfill our commitments and to have integrity spiritually. 
Probably the greatest blight on integrity or the greatest example of someone breaking their integrity publicly in my lifetime has been when President Bill Clinton was impeached in 1998. I still remember sitting there with my wife watching on a sort of small little TV President Clinton being deposed and him, you know, sort of giving these sort of contorted and twisted and slippery answers to skirt the issues where he was being brought up on charges of perjury, obstruction of justice, and malfeasance in office. And, you know, I I know as a president, he fulfilled many good things in his eight years, but when he was asked directly and confronted regarding his sexual sin, what was his response in his deposition? It's very famous. It depends on what your definition of is is. That's not saying, yes, I did it, or no, I didn't do it. And Jesus is saying, look, to have his character, you either say yes, yes, or no, no. So Jesus is saying what integrity isn't, and then he moves on in one quick phrase in verse 37 to say what integrity is. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. If you look specifically at the original language, anything more than this comes from the evil one, is what that says, which I believe is Satan himself. In James chapter 5, verse 12, James picks up on Jesus' words and repeats them and says your yes needs to be yes or your no needs to be no. And if you're not operating with that character, you will fall under condemnation. You know what that means? That means if you have sort of this problem and you don't have personal integrity, it will harden your heart just like Satan's heart was hardened before the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it talks about the character of an elder, says, Don't let a novice or a neophyte become an elder, lest they become proud and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. It's the same idea here. It's condemnation. It's where we are condemning ourselves in our hearts by hardening up, by living a lie, saying we'll do things and then not following through. At all levels, at small levels and at great big levels, where our life becomes a contradiction with God's heart and his integrity. You know, back to sort of the Bill Clinton um, example, what was so surprising to me wasn't that Bill um, sinned in the way that he sinned, but that he was, was able to get away with wordsmithing it in a way that sort of satisfied the culture. I mean, even when he was being deposed, I remember the commentator, I forget who the newscaster was, even the commentator was was just shaking his head through the whole thing, saying, I can't believe that this is coming out in the way that it's coming out. But all of that sort of has gone away in terms of what people think about in that context and how bad that really was and how, how you know, gross it was in terms of what happened as he is a president, but more than that, the testimony on marriage that it presented and a broken marriage. Paul had integrity. And I want you to look over at 2 Corinthians 1.17. This is what the integrity of a Christian looks like. And Paul used Jesus' teaching to defend himself. When he was being questioned as an apostle by false teachers, they were 
just like the Pharisees trying to condemn Paul, just like the Pharisees were um, condemning Jesus. These false teachers were coming after him and saying, look, Paul, when he said he was coming to see you again, didn't show up. So what kind of guy is he? And what they were really trying to do is saying to say, what kind of guy is he and what kind of message is he preaching? They were trying to undo all of him. And in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 1, he says, because of I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. He says, I wanted to visit you on the way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have, sent, have you send me on my way to Judea. Look at verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He's saying, look, I have integrity. I wasn't in the flesh when I said I was going to come back. Obviously, circumstances hindered him from coming back immediately or in the way that he said that he was going to before. But he wasn't vacillating in his heart. His commitment was real. It was yes or it was no. And he compares his commitment to come to them with the gospel. Look at verse 19. He says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I'm saying, look, the gospel isn't yes and no. And Paul's ministry wasn't yes and no. It had integrity. He wasn't duplicitous, just as the gospel is not duplicitous. You know, your word needs to be your bond. For the gospel's sake. You know, there's someone, and I'll just leave it anonymous, um, but there's someone in leadership that was the leader of a seminary who just, uh, you know, came up on charges for how he would give his testimony, and it was this sort of grandiose testimony about how he'd been saved out of Islam and all these things, and, and then suddenly we're finding contradictions in his story, where he grew up and what he had gone through and all these things, and he's been demoted from being the president of a seminary. It's just real-time stuff. And the saddest part of it isn't, isn't that someone could do that, but what's sadder is, is, is how the testimony of Christ is besmirched when people say one thing and there are contradictions in their life or in their testimony. There's a lot on the line. And by God's grace, we should have a testimony that stands up. And you know why you have integrity at all and why your testimony should stand up? It's because you have God's character that's been given to you. God, as it says in Numbers 23, is not a man that he should lie. He's not a liar. He is the opposite of the devil who is the father of lies. He's not a liar and he's the one who gave you your eternal life. He's the one who raised you from the dead. He's the one who birthed you. Spiritually, So you have integrity, and guess what? You want to have integrity. And where you haven't had integrity, you're convicted by that, right? Perhaps you're even sitting here repenting now, saying, Lord, forgive me for this area or that area where I have lacked integrity. But that's because the Spirit of God is working in you, 
and is working this integrity in your life. Listen to the words of Titus 1, verse 2. We have hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God never lies. And we have that same kind of character in us as believers. Jesus, when he was at the Feast of Tabernacles, was being confronted in John chapter 8 by the Pharisees, and they were trying to take him out. And they were saying, look, you can't base your testimony about yourself on yourself. And, and in John 8, you'll see he talks about how he appeals to himself and to his heavenly Father that his testimony is true. And based on these two witnesses... He is the Son of God. So he's talking this through with the Pharisees and they're scratching their head, not getting it. And Jesus basically makes them matter and matter the more he talks. He says in verse 32, Men, Pharisees, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Oh, that really upset them because they're going, Free? We've never been enslaved at all. That's verse 33. We are of our Father children of Abraham. We're, we're from this Abrahamic lineage. We're safe and secure. What are you talking about coming after me? Jesus offends them so much by the end of the passage or the chapter, they're ready to pick up stones and kill him. But what really set them off is John 8 verse 44. John 8 44, and you'll see that on the screen. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, look at this, and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. What a statement is that? When Satan lies, which he is the father of lies, he's speaking out of who he is. That's not who you are. For he is the liar and the father of lies, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Why did the Pharisees not believe him? Because they had the same character as Satan himself. That's what unbelievers are wrestling with. That's what they're dealing with. That's why people lie all the time. You've been lied to. You've probably been in situations like I've been in that are gut-wrenching where you're dealing with something, you're trying to talk something through with someone, they're cutting their eyes down, they're lying to themselves, they're not following through, or people you work with or you give an assignment and they don't follow through, they let you down, they drop the ball. It's character. The grave warning is found in Revelation 22, which basically says that liars, for liars there is a reserved judgment in the lake of fire, which burns day and night with sulfur. Well, how do we bring this home to our lives? I know that many of us, again, are convicted for our lack of follow-through and our lack of integrity. We want to have integrity. Well, let me comfort you with this idea. God has made an oath with you to save you. And God cannot lie. And he will not go back on his oath. Isn't that encouraging? He didn't make a covenant with you that was bilateral. It's a big word, right? Bilateral, or not a big word. It's just a word that nobody ever uses. Okay, but it's helpful. It's not based on your commitment to him and his commitment to you. He made a unilateral commitment. That means his commitment to you was based on him, not you. God promises himself to you based on him, not you. 
So you can't do anything to break his promise with you. Just like the Abrahamic covenant, when he made the covenant with Israel that was based on Abraham's faith, what did he do? He cut, had Abraham cut animals in half, right? It's this great ceremony, you know, for Abraham to walk through the animals. But what did he do? Did Abraham walk through the animals in the story? No, he, he put Abraham to sleep. And God's glory walked through the animals. Why? Because God made the commitment with himself that he would promise to bless and forever have Israel as his people. That's how we know one day Israel will be back in place in God's kingdom because God's promises never fail. And that same promise that he made towards Israel is promised to us as his church, as his people. We are the Israel of God, according to Galatians. And God's promise is unilateral. Deuteronomy 7, 7. This kind of thinking kind of wakes up the Old Testament to us. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, we're the not many mighty and not many noble, but he set his love on us and chose us. Not because we were anything special, but because he chose to. Deuteronomy 10, 15, same thing. He set his love on, our, on your fathers, he says, and chose their offspring. But in the same way, that choosing and setting of love is on his church. This is sort of really brought out in the whole concept of marriage. Anytime someone gets married, that is a picture of God's unilateral covenant to his people, to his church. Whether it's saved people getting married or unsaved people, anytime they vow to commit to each other in that ceremony and come together as husband and wife, that is God's picture. That is his reminder of his covenant love for his church. His promise to you to always be faithful to you. That's his promise. Ephesians chapter 5 really points this out. And it also gives us a, a way to, we we're supposed to live our marriage. Ephesians 5, if you want to turn over there. Husbands are to love their wives and wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5 verse 22 says, wives submit to your husbands. You know what that is? That is and should be a wife making a unilateral commitment a, a commitment within her own mind that she's going to follow her husband's lead no matter what. No matter who her husband is or no matter how badly her husband treats her. She's making a unilateral commitment. And in the same way, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, you sacrifice for your wife. Why? Because your wife's nice to you. No. No matter... How your wife treats you or who your wife is, your goal is to self-sacrificially love your wife. It's a unilateral commitment. And when you are unilaterally committed to each other, where you're committed to each other based on your own character, that builds a beautiful marriage together. God does it the same way. He picks it up in verse 25 in the same passage. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, because the church was nice to Jesus, right? No, it was unilateral. He just did it. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And here's the beautiful picture. One day, 
his commitment is going to be fulfilled. It says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Number two, all of this is based for us to think about number two. Avoid the temptation to deny God's oath towards you. Avoid the temptation to deny God's oath toward you. I think it's real easy for us to believe that God will give up on us. It's easy for you probably, like it is for me, to say, you know what, God probably doesn't love me very intimately today. But he does. Because God can't lie and he says he loves us. So he loves you personally, deeply, intimately, as a father to his child. And it's tempting to say, man, God must have broken his oath there with what I just did, or I didn't follow through, or I, didn't, I wasn't a covenant keeper. But no, God's covenant commitment is to you, and it is forever. God is the only 100% promise keeper. Remember the whole promise keepers movement? Really, the biggest point that should come out of that is that we aren't promise keepers. We're promise breakers, and God is the ultimate promise keeper. He's the one who keeps all his promises. God is faithful even we are not, when we are not, and God's love is based on him, not based on you. God loves you, and nothing you can do will ever, ever change it, ever. So as you think about your own character and you think about your own integrity, we strive by God's grace to live out our promises, right? But we do it in the example and the shadow of God's love, where he is the ultimate promise keeper, and his promise is to love you and see you through your life and your situation and your circumstances, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. I thank you for these words from Jesus that teach us. It teaches us not to be a faker. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be fakes. I pray that we would be the real thing. Lord, when we are real in our Christian